Thank you. Um, it, it, I had to go into the audio settings after it signed out. So, Grant. okay, do we, have, uh, do we have a quorum, sir? Yes, we have members there, Colm, and um, the officials are ready. So work away. Okay. Okay. Well, good morning, members, and I would like to now declare the meeting open to the public online. I'd like to welcome all of our members participating by video conferencing and to thank members for your attendance at this urgent meeting of the committee. Um, can I remind members about the protocols regarding the use of electronic devices? So members, we are today, uh, we have received one apology from Mr. Jerry Carroll. Are members aware of any other apologies? No, okay, thank you. Members, we're moving on then to our substantive uh, briefing, which is a departmental briefing. So we have officials here today to brief us on the current increase in the COVID numbers and the rise in admissions to hospital and to ICU. We requested to be briefed on three particular areas. The increasing number of cases, including information on modeling projections and forecasting, staffing problems as highlighted by the trusts and on vaccinations. So I would now like to welcome the following officials to our meeting this morning, uh, Mr. Ian Young, Chief Scientific Officer. Uh, can you hear me there, uh, Ian? Okay, and so I'm not hearing I'm not hearing you at this point yeah, in time. Sorry. I, yeah, I can, okay. Yes. I, I can hear you there, Ian. Um and we are also joined by Patricia Donnelly, who's head of the vaccination program. Good morning, Patricia. Can you hear me? I can hear you very well. Good morning. Thank, thank you, Patricia, and good morning. And Mr. Paul Cavanaugh, who's the interim director of planning and commissioning within the HSCB, the Health and Social Care Board. Can you hear me also, okay, Paul? Yes, good morning, Colin. Good morning. So good morning, everyone, and I want to welcome you here to the meeting this morning. Um, and just to just to say that if everyone in the meeting, when you're not speaking, can keep yourself on mute, and if everyone has uh, can use or has access to a headset, that is generally helpful with the sound quality. So I will go back to the panel then and invite the, the officials to brief the committee, and then we'll go into a round of questions and answers, please. So I'll go back to yourself, uh, Professor Young. Um, can you outline for us how you want to manage the briefing end of things before we go into the questions and answers? Um, so I would be happy to um, summarise the current position in relation to case numbers, hospital admissions, etc., and then comment on where we are in relation to modelling in terms of what might come next. Okay, thank you. Well, um, so do you want to go ahead and do that? And then I'll go to Patricia and then we'll, we'll, we'll take the, the three brief uh, opening remarks and then we'll go into questions um, following that. So if you want to go ahead, Professor Young. So as members will be aware, there has been a progressive increase in case numbers um, throughout the month of July. Um, and the number of cases is now at around 60% of the number in the previous wave. Um, it has been rising with a doubling time of approximately seven to eight days. Um, but over the course of the last um, week, case numbers appear to have plateaued and have leveled out. There are two potential reasons for that. Um, number one, it may be a consequence of the most unusual weather of the last two weeks. Um, 
you are aware that in general the virus spreads less well when individuals um, are outdoors and also is um, spread is reduced in the presence of good ventilation. So we believe that there's been a high level of outdoor interaction in the last two weeks. And in addition, that almost everybody has had their windows um, open, um, encouraging ventilation and airflow. And there may have been a significant beneficial effect of those two things in terms of reducing um, the rise in case numbers. If that analysis is correct, then we would expect the upward trajectory of case numbers to resume, and that will become apparent next week. The second possibility is that there is a key subgroup of the population who are mainly responsible for driving the epidemic. They would be younger people with large numbers of social contacts. And if that subgroup of the population um, achieves a high level of immunity as a result of exposure to the virus, then the impetus that they provide to transmission will decline. And we may see an ongoing decline in case numbers. Now, we're not really going to be sure about which of those two is correct. Um, until I think next week, depending on whether case numbers decline a little more or whether they continue to rise. In terms of modelling of case numbers, we have three scenarios, um, a pessimistic, a central and an optimistic scenario. And we're following very closely the central scenario in terms of case numbers. If it had continued unabated, we anticipated that we would peak at somewhere around three and a half to 4,000 cases per day if everyone um, was coming forward for testing, always an unlikely scenario. Um, but in the last few days, we have dipped below central. So we're doing slightly better than the central case scenario um, uh, for the reasons or potential reasons that I have described. So secondly, moving on to um, hospital admissions and pressures. As members will be aware, there is a lag period between um, an increase in case numbers and an increase in hospital admissions. And that lag period follows after around um, eight days in terms of hospital bed occupancy. Um, so we have been seeing the anticipated rise in case numbers in terms of admissions, then in hospital bed occupancy. And at current modeling, we are tracking somewhat between the central scenario and the pessimistic scenario in terms of hospital pressures. Um, under the central scenario for hospital pressures, we would peak at somewhere around 400 um, inpatients um, towards the end of August, numbers gradually rising um, until then. Numbers continue to rise at present, but if indeed case numbers stabilise and begin to fall, 
then I expect that hospital inpatient numbers will stabilise probably towards the end of next week. If case numbers begin to rise again um, as a result of the weather deteriorating, then there would be a further increase in hospital admissions and pressures after that. At present, um, the number of COVID patients in hospitals remains around one third of that that was observed um, in the previous wave. So the proportion of individuals who are identified as cases who become admitted to hospital is falling and has fallen as a result of the beneficial effects of vaccination, which Patricia will, um, I think, reference later. So during the last wave in February, we were admitting five to 6% of cases to hospital. And at present, um, it's somewhere between three and 4% of cases which are being admitted to hospital. In terms of critical care, um, the pressures on critical care have been towards the upper end of what we might have anticipated. Although I have to stress that there's still only around one third of the numbers that there were during the previous wave. We believe that's likely to be due to the fact that younger patients are now being admitted to hospital as cases and that the threshold for admission to critical care may have changed somewhat. A similar effect has been observed in Scotland, though it's difficult to get accurate um, information on that. And it's something that we continue to keep under review. But in essence, critical care numbers will rise until admission numbers and inpatient numbers stabilise, and then they will begin to fall again after a further lag. Finally, in terms of modelling, um, the outcome of modelling is critically influenced by the extent to which we get vaccine uptake. Um, the initial modelling we did for this summer wave um, assumed 85% first dose vaccine uptake by adults by the end of July and 90% by the end of August. We had to revise the modelling um, earlier this month to account for the fact that we were unlikely to reach 85% first dose vaccine uptake. I think we're currently sitting at a little over 83%. That reflects huge efforts, as all members will be aware. Consistent messaging and um, walk-in vaccine centres, mobile vaccine units being taken to areas where younger people who are less likely to be vaccinated congregate. And we'll continue to push that. I have to note that um, we lag behind England, Scotland and Wales in terms of first dose vaccination by around um, 5 to 6% minimum and in some cases by more than that. In terms of second doses of vaccination, we're very similar to England and um, Scotland, but we lag behind Wales by about 10%. So there has been a concern that the willingness of the Northern Ireland population to come forward for vaccination, for whatever reason, 
seems less than that in other parts of the UK. And that will lead to a larger susceptible population in Northern Ireland and therefore the potential for a more severe wave on this occasion. Every small percentage increase in vaccination that we can achieve will make a real difference um, in terms of how quickly the current wave will resolve and the potential for future waves. Um, so that's my summary of the current position. Okay, thank you. And Patricia then, in terms of the vaccination? Uh, good morning, Chair. Um, if you're content, I was going to show a few slides to summarise some things that are familiar to committee, but maybe just give a, an, up, an update. Um, I'm hoping that I should be able to uh, share a screen um, if I... Apologies. I've already... Um, I've sent the presentation to the committee. I can't seem to get it up. Keith, I think that went earlier this morning. I'll check and see from here, Patricia, and see if we can get it okay. up. Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll start anyway. Um, uh, on that presentation, I will have reminded members of the plan for the programme. And although we're at exactly the same um, stage of the plan, uh, we are, as Ian has mentioned, it has very much, the uptake has slowed down uh, for this period. We've had, we were the first in the UK to open to the under 30s, and that's been open for two months. However, um, their uptake has been incredibly slow. And in fact, uh, the dashboard that I was going to show um, will indicate that we have uh, just, uh, thank you, if we could go to the, yes, the slide four, please. Fourth one done. Sorry, Patricia, there is a wee bit of a lag in the system just That's okay. um, for the... But it has shown that we have, uh, again, um, 2.2 million doses administered, um, but as Ian says, 83% of the population, adult population, and 71% are fully vaccinated. But our issues will be, I think I'll move on to slide five when you get a chance, Keith, we'll show the update. Thank you. That's the uptake rates. And, and th this is where I think the story lies. Um, if we go through, you'll see um, these are based, um, that uh, cohort, you'll notice along here where it says cohort size, will tell you the size of the population we were targeting in this. Now, this is based on the 2019 um, mid-year population estimates. Um, we're going to move very shortly, you'll see next week, to the 2020 mid-year estimates, and it will change that slightly. It will show a slightly older, more in the older population and fewer in the younger population. So we'll adjust these figures slightly. It will take us down to less than 100% in the over 70s and 80s, um, but not by more than a percent or two, and it will take us up a percent or two in the youngest age groups. But we are comparable and indeed ahead of other parts of uh, the UK and Ireland in terms of our uptake until we get to the under 50s. And then you'll see from 40 to 49, only 
83% of the population, and then it drops down further to 70% of the 30 to 39. So they're still coming forward, but very slowly, and we've not yet reached um, 60%. Um, Keith, could you go to the next one, please? Um, again, members will be aware that we had seven vaccination centres. Um, in the last month, the bookings to these centres have been very low, so we started to open it to walk-ins. We would do anything to try and get people to come forward, um, but even those are very low. The last couple of days have seen a pickup as we're nearing the end of first dose completions there, um, and we'll continue there with second appointments to mid-July. But the real energies in the last uh, four to six weeks have been in pop-up and mobile teams. We've had over 35 already um, out there and many, many more planned. Um, we are informed by the information about where the uptake rates are. We're informed by where we believe we're going to uh, find young people. So we're in high streets, we're in estates. Um, we've been had a specific a series of initiatives with the food industry to increase uptake. We work with sports bodies, event companies, further education colleges, universities. We have a big two-week period at the beginning of term planned for those that are returning to further education. We've had community pharmacies who were delivering AZ, which are continuing to do. And you will know, Chair, that um, AZ was not recommended for the under 40s. So we've developed an initiative with 16 pharmacies to handle the Moderna vaccine. A more complex vaccine is a messenger RNA. Um, but this week sees 16 pharmacies scattered through Northern Ireland. This will be phased up in August to 80. And we hope uh, even more in the autumn. And we call this the Evergreen Programme. So anyone who's missed the main vaccination programme who still wants to be vaccinated, you go to Community Pharmacy. They will continue to vaccinate. GPs, 321 of them are completing the second doses. Can we go to the next slide, please? Okay, and we've recently had an interim advice for the under 18 year olds. So just when we're hearing the end of the, this part of the programme, they recommended no blanket vaccination for the under 18s and we'll use Pfizer vaccine with this group. So you'll see in the left column what the advice is. This is interim advice. It's not yet fully resolved, um, but on that basis, we're planning. Um, and anyone who will be 18 by the 31st October already can walk in or book to a vaccination centre. Anyone 16 and 17 at a greater risk of serious uh, COVID, um, effects of COVID can also go to book in or walk in a vaccination centre. And anyone over 12 years of age uh, in a household of someone severely immunosuppressed, um, they will get a letter from the GP from Trust. We did this uh, uh, some months ago with the 16 to 17 year olds and we welcome the advice for 12 to 15 year olds. So although the vaccination centres will close to the general public, these individuals and these children and their parents can still attend with their letter and they will be vaccinated and we'll be communicating that to them this week. Uh, many will already have received those letters and indeed those vaccinations have started. And then a, a really important group of 12 to 15 year olds with specific health conditions. JCVI are very uh, clear about who falls within this. You'll see the list. And what has happened is our child health partnership group, that's the pediatricians and those in hospitals and, and community um, are working with the trust and the public health agency to identify them. They should be receiving letters very shortly and we'll invite them to invitation uh, to vaccination. And they'll either come to 
special sessions in the vaccination centres um, or they will um, go to um, designated special schools where we'll have set those up. That will be the, ninth, the week commencing the 9th of August. So that's coming up very shortly. Uh, the next slide, please. Um, okay, so this is really, it's been of enormous concern to us that right from the start we were aware that our very fast um, uptake rate just slowed dramatically. It went off a cliff in um, in June when we moved to this uh, age group. So we worked with the behavioural insight team and they said to us, yes, some might have safety concerns, but the majority, it was all about convenience. They didn't really believe they were going to be greatly affected. They didn't like to go by themselves. They preferred to go in groups. Um, what other people said was really important. So those who would influence young people, um, making sure they had the right messages and they would use social media rather than traditional media. So we moved in the vaccination centres from the booking system to walk-ins. Um, we'd had a no photography um, rule to protect the privacy of individuals. And we realised that uh, if we didn't allow the opportunities for selfies, it may not actually even be seen as an, an important event. So we created those areas within the centres and we tried some novel means. Uh, you will have heard in SSA Arena, they had an ice cream van for a period of time, mainly to draw attention to the fact that it, that it was there. But it's been the mobile clinics that have really started to have an impact very slow. These are hard yards. These are uh, very challenging, but in high street locations all across towns, villages in Northern Ireland. It also, we're informed by the, the vaccine management system on the areas of low uptake. So we've gone to estates, we've gone to um, locations that, and, and people have come out. It's been very heartening to see it. Um, we provided added uh, sports matches, both um, uh, football matches, GAA matches, um, and we will be providing vaccination opportunities at some of the entertainment events that are coming up. And in the term opening, we'll go to further education colleges and universities. And you may have seen some media last night, um, again, at antenatal clinics. We know that uh, pregnant women are particularly vulnerable to this virus. And the PHA have led a mass media campaign through digital channels and, and through social media. And if you go to the next one, you'll just see a little bit of a, a snapshot uh, so these are some of their targeted campaigns about uh, a different um, areas. So uh, I, I think that's just a sample of it. And then the very last slide, please. Which is really saying, well, there's, uh, as of this morning, it's 71% fully vaccinated, 83% first doses. At the current run rate, we will hit 85% during August. Um, but we need, for that, we need 31,000. Um, for 85%. 31,000 two months ago meant nothing to us. We were vaccinating 90,000 people a week um, and that was remarkable. We're now doing, we're lucky to do 1,000, uh, 2,000 a day. So that that is much more of a push and you'll see the numbers that we need to get those higher numbers. But we are aware, Ian and his colleagues remind us that every 5% more uh, people we can get vaccinated will significantly reduce hospitalizations. We can take take the screen down. Thank you. Very happy to answer any questions, Chair. 
Okay, thank you. And I'll go then across to Paul to uh, to see Paul. Do you have some opening remarks that you wish to make? Yes, thank you, Colm, and, and good morning, committee members. Um, I mean, Colm, we've we've over since the last we have uh, passed us in uh, in March time. We've seen really unprecedented pressures within our hospitals, and, and committee members will be well aware of the I suppose the media attention on our emergency departments, on ambulances queuing, on. Uh, I suppose pressures within our EDs and within our hospitals, and a lot of that has been relating to unscheduled care. Uh, and we really have been working hard to see if we can, I suppose, progress that, change the 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 position in relation to it. But the numbers keep coming, and, and we've uh, reflected on that this is currently uh, sort of in the middle of summer, probably one of the worst winters we've ever seen. Um, and it is, I suppose, it, in that context column that that I want to just remind members of the pressures that were already within our hospitals before this fourth wave approached us. At the same time, we've we've stood up a, a lot of our elective surgery, which we had stood down, as you know, through the second and third waves largely. Um, and then in recent weeks, we've been uh, performing some 3,700 surgeries per week. So you know, we've been able to stand up quite a bit, but we also know we've got a lot more than that to be doing to catch up with the considerable backlogs that, again, committee members will be fully aware of. But I suppose as this, as this wave has approached us probably about two weeks in advance of what we expected, Colm, I think we've had to very quickly uh, move into our contingency mode. Uh, and a few things then I think are worth uh, noting for members. Uh, and I suppose it's also worth noting that GPs are under considerable pressure as well, continue to have GP-led COVID uh, centres, as you know. Uh, but in many ways, the, the pressures across our system uh, continue. So uh, within our, in relation then to COVID specifically, um, the, we've, you'll be aware that uh, one of the, the indicators that we look for is actually the number of respiratory patients in our hospitals. So we have some, uh, probably 3,000 beds available in our, our hospital at any time, and around 11% of those currently have COVID patients in them, which is very much in line with, with Ian's figures. Uh, so it gives you a sense just of, of the kind of numbers that we're talking about. And about 60 of those patients we call enhanced respiratory care patients. So they're patients who require who probably have underlying respiratory conditions, uh, some who will just be badly affected by COVID as well. And we are really have those on additional support uh, for uh, due to those respiratory conditions. Um, and we, we are, I suppose, we're insure, want to ensure within our hospitals that our oxygen supplies are good, which they are. We just checked over the last day or so in terms of our community oxygen supplies. That's also good. So at the moment, we're uh, well able to, to cope with any oxygen demand that we might have. We're also very conscious that uh, you know there's a pediatric virus going around at the moment called RSV, which may actually be a, a, a impact on more infants. It usually impacts on on sort of not the one year olds, but this year it might also affect some one to two year olds as well. So our, our pediatric services are keeping an eye on that as well uh, at the moment. But it's not COVID related, but it's coming at the same time as this wave as well, and will continue into the winter period. So our respiratory patients we're very conscious of at this stage, and those respiratory patients as well. Some of them. I must emphasize, not all of them, but some of them may require uh, critical care, intensive care. Um, so we that's why we keep an eye on the respiratory patients. And over the last few days, we've worked hard to ensure that we have all of our uh, critical care beds open. We have 88 beds across Northern Ireland, and we currently have 86 of them open. And that's a much better position than it was five days ago. And in having all of those beds open, we, we then have more beds available because there came a point when we felt that we were we just didn't have enough headroom in critical care. Now we have some 13 beds available, and that gives us, I think, a, a considerable amount of headroom. 
Interesting as well, Colin, because we asked the question about vaccination in relation to those 73 patients that are currently within our ICUs, and some two-thirds of them are unvaccinated. So that gives you a sense of, of, the, uh, of the, the issues that we're facing in relation to vaccination and the importance of vaccination as well. Uh, and it all, uh, we also know that some of those uh, patients are a lot younger than they would have been in previous waves. So on that basis, there's a, it's a very different demographic that we're looking at as well. Um, and of those 73 patients, uh, it's worth noting as well. Sorry, I, I need to explain that a bit better. Of the 73 patients in critical care, 34 are COVID patients and two thirds of those 34 then are unvaccinated. So apologies, Colin, if, that's, if I've confused in any way. So our, our critical care pressures are considerable. Added to our unscheduled care pressures, on that basis, trust now have had to look just at how they can, I suppose, ensure that we actually deliver all of those critical care beds, that additional respiratory care that we need to provide. And unfortunately, trusts now have had to say that they've got to step down some uh, elective care operations, as again, this committee will be aware. So we are, we are performing on average around 3,700 uh, surgeries uh, per week. And I think this week we've had to step down some 120 of those surgeries. Um, due to the pressures, particularly in Belfast and largely orthopedic patients. So it's, you know, it's, it's awful for those patients, of course, but given some of the staff pressures that we face, we felt we had no choice. And important also then to emphasize that this is also about having the, en enough staff to deliver the services that we need to deliver. Some 1800 staff are currently off due to COVID. Some of them are, are infected. Uh, but the vast majority of them are actually isolating due to contact with others who, ha who are, uh, have tested positive. So it's a large number of, of, of staff that are currently unavailable to us. And obviously, we're looking at where the opportunities are for those double vaccinated staff, the majority of whom are double vaccinated, of course, or we can actually see how we can maintain them in work. Uh, it, despite coming into contact with someone, who, someone who's, who has been infected. The other big issue for us as well at the moment is ensuring that our discharge from hospitals is, is going is very much like clockwork, uh, and that is very challenging. Uh, we, uh, just yesterday, Colin, we had some 229 uh, patients awaiting uh, beds within our hospitals. They needed to be admitted. And we had some 300 patients, 308 patients, who were awaiting discharge. So they were medically fit. They were ready to go. Uh, and uh, so on that basis, we actually had more people needing to be discharged than actually the number of people that needed beds. So if we could move those discharges on, and on that basis, the trust then have taken the decision to work with families to see if we can actually move those discharges on much faster. It's worth noting that of, our, of all of our care home beds within Northern Ireland, about 12% of those beds are actually available to us. But there are issues in terms of using those beds. Some of it is about the the, the kind of the isolation that, that's required for a new care home patient to come into to uh, a, a, a care home, uh, and some of that obviously is the additional staff requirement that relates to it. But some of it also is sort of patient and family choice um, in relation to which care home they would like to go to. We are having to actually say to, to uh, patients and families, look, we need you to move to this care home sooner rather than later. And we'll obviously look then at, at the, sort of your needs thereafter. We also are challenged in terms of our community, in terms of our domiciliary care services and packages available. So it, it is in many ways, Colm, a very complex picture. Uh, there are many pieces that, that have to fit together. And this fourth wave of COVID has just made that complexity even more complex. Thank you. Okay, so I'll go back first of all then to yourself, um, Ian, in relation. And first of all, before before just if I can clear up, um, 
So the committee obviously has reconvened in light of the very serious situation that we're hearing being reported. One of the one of the key impacts of that is um, first and foremost on patients who are now experiencing um, surgeries being cancelled, very significant um, surgeries. People are paying people with extreme worry about what's going on with with their case or, or with their cancer, and we know there are cancer operations cancelled. The committee had asked that uh, that the chief medical officer, the minister, the the perm, recognizing what Paul has just said, the complexity of the issues that we're dealing with. We had asked for a range of people. We had actually been indicated that we would be able to talk to the chief nursing officer, and we were keen to do that, given that staff are under so much pressure at the current time, and we wanted to explore that. But can you just can you just clear that up as to as to as to as to, you know, we thought we were getting the chief nursing officer and that you actually weren't available, and now we find that you are available, but the chief nursing officer not. So I'm just wondering how that has come about. Um, Chair, I obviously can't comment on the availability um, of other officials um, in the department. Officials are under huge pressure at the moment, as you rightly indicate, um, as a consequence of the course of the epidemic. Um, I was able to cancel other commitments um, to make myself available to the committee. Okay, and I do, I do think the committee, the committee clearly um, has a key interest and, 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 and does need to speak to, to those people. So I, I hope that doesn't impact negatively on our ability to drill into the current situation. So I will now go on, go on to that situation. And I have already referenced there the pressure that's been placed on staff. I also have been speaking to people who have directly, as, as of yesterday, have had operations cancelled. Um, one woman that I was speaking with um, is, was, was to go in for a surgery on cancer. She has been told by three consultants she's red flagged, had been isolating, had been tested. Uh, her children had had, to, had had to move out of the home and her operation was cancelled yesterday and she has no idea when that operation is happening. She can't bring the children back into the home because of because the isolation needs to continue. And people like that in that position are wondering, given that we are now in the fourth stage and the fourth surge of COVID-19, and the committee has always said that we will be supportive and we will provide scrutiny and advice, but that we would be keen to see learning developed and learning implemented. So we know this has happened in the previous surges. We know the hospitals come under pressure. We know there is finite resource within the hospitals. So given all that, what has went wrong on this occasion that sees us now back in the situation that we have been in in previous surges? And how could that have been avoided? So I'll, I'll comment first of all briefly, and then I think Paul will um, pick up on some of those issues. Um, Obviously, the waves of the epidemic um, impose considerable additional pressures in terms of COVID admissions. Um, and at the moment, um, the current wave, I hope, will lead to less hospital pressures as a direct result of COVID than previous waves have done. That's a consequence of the success of the vaccination programme and all of the efforts which have gone into ensuring that that's the case. I think we're all acutely aware of the pressures on our colleagues in primary care and in the hospital system. Um, as a result of this wave occurring in the summer, 
when some people will have holidays booked and exhausted staff, I think, need to take holidays and breaks to ensure their resilience. Secondly, as a result of the number of people who may have needed to self-isolate because we're having this wave in the context of both larger case numbers and cases having larger number of contacts as a consequence of the relaxations which the executive have approved and society moving slowly back to normal. Clearly the smaller the epidemic um, in terms of case numbers then the less those pressures will be and we need to remember that the focus has to be on pushing vaccination, encouraging adherence to positive behaviours and trying to minimise the size of the, the current wave. And with that context, I think Paul can comment on the issues around and um, that the trusts are facing specifically. Yeah, thanks, Ian. I mean, I think, Colin, you know, there, there are three or four issues that have led us to, to this point. Um, one is that on unrelenting, um, unscheduled care pressure that we've had since April. So here we are in July, the end of July, and we've actually been experiencing this for some months now. Um, a large number of people come into our emergency departments, a large number of people requiring appropriately to be admitted to hospital and then challenges in terms of discharge uh, to clear our beds and so on to, for others who are coming each day. So it, it has been very challenging for us on that basis and our hospitals then have been under severe pressure throughout that time. But also throughout that time, as we got our elective care and our elective surgery up and running again, we've protected that. And we've managed to actually keep our head above water in terms of the levels of, of surgeries that we've been able to provide. Some 3,700, as I said before, provided sort of a, a, at this stage. So it has been a challenging period, but we've kept our, our sort of what we call green sites and green pathways, sort of non-COVID areas uh, that allow us to, to maintain our, our elective surgery as much as we possibly can. But unfortunately, as the, as the time has gone on, staff availability has become more challenging. This wave has affected staff, both in terms of staff who have been become infected and staff who have had to isolate due to coming into contact who, with someone who has uh, tested positive. Uh, so on that basis, that, that with actually the annual leave, which staff need, our staff have been really under huge pressure for some, what, 18 months almost at this stage. Uh, we need our staff to take our leave, to recuperate and to actually uh, to be ready for what's ahead in terms of the, the real winter that's, a, that's ahead as well. So staff availability is a particular problem for us right now, which it wasn't quite a month ago. So on that basis, Colm, I think that has been a, a key issue for us. And on top of that, then, we've had to ensure that all of our critical care beds, our respiratory care beds and so on, are available to us so that we so that as further patients come forward that we are ready for that and that does have some impact then on theater uh, services on you because we have to draw on theater nurses we have to sort of use some of the kind of uh, sort of theater capacity in order to support the likes of our critical care and respiratory care so it, it, and on that basis this week and it hasn't happened up until this point that this week we've lost as i said before some 120 surgeries so including some which are cancer surgeries i'm actually the the cancer lead in in the board so i'm fully aware of that and i'm very disappointed and i really am sorry that we haven't been able to maintain those surgeries 
We also know that we need to do more surgeries than the 3,700 we've been doing in recent weeks. Uh, we're doing all that we can to actually ramp up. This further surge just has limited us in terms of further ramping up. But it is it is very, very challenging. We have some very hardworking staff doing the best that they possibly can. But unfortunately, this week we reached the tipping point and we've tried to minimize the amount of surgeries that have had to be canceled. But there's a clear commitment to get those surgeries rescheduled as soon as possible. Thank you. And going, going back then to yourself, Ian, in relation to, to what Paul has touched upon there, the complexity of the system, the fact that staff breaks need to be factored in, and that, that's, that's an important part of it. The, the issue around the capacity within the hospitals, capacity of staff, capacity of theatre space, capacity within critical care, um, supplies of oxygen, all that's interrelated. So I presume that is all factored into the modelling which you provide to the executive and, and that, that that modeling takes account of the fact that we are heading into a period of time when we have certain amount of vacancies within the staff cohort. We're expecting a certain amount of annual leave and, and the additional pressures. So does, does the modeling take account of that? And if it takes account of that, then was it predictable that the hospitals, knowing they were already on 100%, that if COVID cases rises, the hospitals would inevitably be overwhelmed and surgeries would have to be cancelled to come? So um, the modelling which we provide, firstly, modelling is not a prediction, as I continually said, um, and the outcomes of modelling reflect what will occur in particular scenarios. Um, which scenario was followed depends on decisions which are made by ministers in relation to um, relaxations. It's influenced by vaccination uptake and it's influenced by then behaviours of individuals in terms of their levels of adherence to the restrictions which are meant to be in place. The modelling also is only addressed at numbers of COVID cases and the number of COVID cases which are likely to lead to admissions and hence critical care. So the Modelling which we conduct for the executive does not take into account those broader factors. The COVID modelling then um, is provided to um, the board and colleagues in the PHA. Sorry, Ian, just just let me just let, just let me put you back. So you're saying that modelling is not provided to the executive. So how can the executive then, um, if that's relevant, uh, how can the executive factor that into their considerations? So the modelling which we provide to the executive um, is modelling of the COVID epidemic. Um, it's not modelling of the broader picture. The modelling which we provide to the executive um, around COVID goes to the board and the board then carry out, um, have commissioned additional modelling um, which looks at the likely impacts on individual trusts that modelling goes to the individual trusts and my understanding is that they aim to plan their services based on their understanding both of admissions which may come from COVID and also other pressures including staffing pressures and other healthcare problems. Well, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Just, just, just. I'm still struggling with with the concept around the executive not getting the broader picture. I don't understand how the executive can make informed decisions if they don't know the broader picture and what the outside, not only what the COVID numbers are, 
but what the impact will be in the reality of the situation of the health system that we have in place to, to cope. So, so, I don't understand so to be clear, the executive do receive an update in terms of the broader picture around the pressures which are faced by the um, healthcare system, both primary and secondary care, but specifically the modelling which is carried out um, is not modelling which deals with the totality of pressures. And that is the case with the modelling that's provided um, throughout the UK to different UK governments and modelling which is carried out in the Republic of Ireland. Modeling is, is that part? Is that is is that a flawed? Is that a flawed approach? Given that we are dealing with the current situation where the impact is flowing into the into the uh, everyday situation, so is that a flawed approach? Um, it's not possible to do that um, modeling, unfortunately. Um, the system in which we operate is too complex. The number of variables is too great. It's not a flawed approach. It's just not possible to model effectively the totality of everything in the context of uh, an epidemic of this kind. Nobody nobody does that. Well, listen, and we have asked in previous occasions, but can you forward that modelling that you're providing to the executive to this committee so we can apply our scrutiny to that? Can that modelling be provided to the committee? And the chair will, I think you're probably aware um, that we published some modelling um, earlier in July. I've seen that modelling, Ian. I've seen that. I've seen that in response to being told that previously at a previous committee meeting. I have seen that, but surely that's not the entirety of the modelling. That five page of modelling is not the entirety of what the executive are, are working from. No, we provide um, modelling on a weekly basis to the executive, um, which includes current modelling and an update on how we're performing against that. Um, You'll appreciate that any decision about publishing that modelling and making it available is one for the executive and it's not a commitment which as an official that I would be able to give. And in terms of the trust modelling and the fuller, the, the other, the modelling to the board, is there further information you can provide the, the committee in relation to that? Um, I can't because I don't see that modelling and I'm not involved in it. Um, Paul may be able to comment on that. Modeling comes to me, uh, Colm, and uh, it goes then to trust and trust there and use that as the basis of their sort of, I suppose, thinking through what staff they required it to provide beds and so on. I'm happy to take that back and uh, with a view to, to sharing that with the committee. Uh, but I mean, it, it is, it, I would have to just emphasize it is pretty high level uh, and it's how the trust then interpret that. Okay, thank you, and I, and I want to move on to, to other members um, as well. So, so I will, I will. Uh, I will move on on that. I look forward to getting that. You know, what's clear is here, and this is what people out there in the public are saying, you cannot continue to do the same thing and expect a different outcome every time. So we have seen in every previous surge of this where the numbers increase, they rise exponentially, they get out of control, and they put the pressure onto the healthcare system. And that's right across the system, GPs, emergency departments, paramedics, everyone comes under pressure. So... What we as a committee are looking is where the, the learning is being demonstrated. We're saying, well, actually, this time we did this in order to avoid the situation of life-threatening or uh, significant surgeries being cancelled. So I think I think there's still a, a lack of, of understanding. So we know the system is finite, so therefore you need to control the numbers in a way which doesn't allow the system to become overwhelmed. 
So I, I look forward to receiving that modeling, but I, I am concerned about that. I have a quick question for uh, for yourself, Paul, and then I have one for, for Patricia on the vaccines. So, Paul, just in relation to the... Uh, in, in, there's other impacts here that have been a, a result of this outside of the hospital situation. In the Southern Trust, our uh, out-of-hours GP service across the Southern Trust has been contracted back down from five sites to three to two sites, um, severely decreasing the accessibility of, of our population here in the Southern Trust. Can you tell me what is being done to address that situation? Because surely it just can't be a situation where we start cancelling services. Um, there has to be a plan to provide the services on a, on a fair and an equal basis right across the north. The, the staff availability that's affecting other parts of the health service is also affecting general practice and, and both general practice in ours and gen general practice out of ours. And on that basis, Colin, I think we've had to take some difficult decisions to try and keep our services going. Uh, GP out of ours has, in, in all of our areas, been challenged in, in recent years just in terms of having enough uh, staff to, de to, de de uh, to deliver the service, particularly GP input. Um, and I think now we're, what we're seeing is that the staff availability due to the kind of COVID implications, I think, is challenging us and we're having to limit that service. I don't know the, the specifics in relation to the, the southern area, to be honest with you, Colin, but I know the generality, which is we're under pressure in general practice in ours and out of ours as much as we are under pressure in our hospitals. So on that basis, I think we're going to see these kind of decisions, but hopefully they'll be short lived. We'll get staff back to work and we'll be able to get the, the services delivered in the way that we would prefer to deliver them. Okay, uh, Patricia, in, in terms of the, the information that you had given us and you had said that there are uh, mass media campaigns and that, and, and I would encourage that, and I would encourage from this platform, I would encourage everyone, all of our young people, to go and, and get the vaccine um, and to do that as quick as possible, particularly when the walk-in centres are still there for convenience. And you have outlined some of the uh, proactive things that you're doing, but in terms of tackling disinformation, what's being done that's, that's circulating on social media? Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, there are specific initiatives that uh, the public health agency are doing in the in social media. I think particularly th there was some misinformation around the impact on those who were pregnant. So that did stop uh, uh, or made those who were pregnant uh, very hesitant. So they've got, whether aware of it, they try to put out counter information from very credible resources. Uh, I mentioned um, pregnant women, so it would have come from the Royal College of Obstetrics and Midwives, and uh, and uh, to be able to be very specific and 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 kind of credible and give assurances. So they're chipping away at this, but it's it's never ending. I mean, it it is highly pervasive, as you know. Um, you need to be aware of it in the first place. So where they become aware of it, they watch this very carefully. Uh, they counter it as quickly as they can. And one of the things that they've been trying to do, uh, looking at what I was saying earlier about who can influence, is to work through influencers as well. Um, so that where they've got someone uh, perhaps who had previously not been vaccinated and uh, became ill or through other circumstances changed their mind and uh, came forward vaccination, they, they interviewed those individuals. And I thought there was a very powerful interview last night on the news from a pregnant woman who'd chosen to be vaccinated and uh, she'd, I think she'd hesitated for a while and then built up her confidence and, and went forward. And I think that's exactly what we need to keep doing. It's a relentless campaign and we just have to be very determined about it. Okay, thank you, Patricia. So I'm going to go then to members. So the first indication I had then was from Carol Nicholin and then going to Deputy Chair Pam Cameron, Jonathan Buckley, Orlea Flynn, 
Paula Bradshaw, Alan Chambers, and Cara Hunter. Those are the indications I have at present. So we'll go across to yourself then, Carol. Lanaray, Lidahol, Lesh, Dekesht. Okay, um, Gormaga, Cahirley, uh, thank you very much uh, for being at the committee this morning, particularly given the fact of the situation that we're in. Um, so for me, um, the concern I have is that I still don't think it's clear enough the different modelling between the modelling that's given to the executive, the modelling that's get, given to the board and then passed down to trusts. Um, but I, I do think any further uh, clarification would be helpful and I would encourage you to do that. But for me, the question for me is why why has the surge plans, particularly in Belfast Trust, not why is the button not been pushed on those? And then surely, you know, the difficulties that we're having, particularly with GPs and out of our services are going to put pressure on our emergency departments. Why has when are we gonna actually tackle the area of workforce planning? Because uh, Ian Young actually said, and he's right, that staff need breaks. But then you've seen in Belfast last week, anybody that wasn't on duty was asked to come back. So, you know, it's really around, that's my first question, Chair. The second one really is, um, given given the fact that um, surgeries are going to be reduced, but hopefully resumed next week, and some of those have been described as red flag cancer surgeries. What you know? What message in terms of Paul as a commissioner are we going to say to those people? You know, um, given the fact that they're, you know, everybody accepts that this is a very stressful situation. And my last question really is around the conditions that staff are working in currently. So everyone rightly commends our health and social care staff, and that's right across the board. But we are still seeing images of ambulances being backed up to admit patients. We're seeing health and social care staff to the point of exhaustion and then the step up again. And last week in the Royal, although the situation was rectified for a few days, the windows had to be closed because of the demolition of Bostick House for um, some days in a, a heat wave. And the chief executive, in my opinion, made the absolutely right decision to open the windows, but they're not closed again. There's no ventilation. Uh, so what are we going to do, not only to look after patients in that situation, but also staff right across the health and social care piece? Thank you. Go ahead, Paul. So, so Colin, and thanks for that, Carol. I mean, it is a... A sort of a challenging sort of period for us uh, indeed and you've actually noted renovations and it's interesting summertime is the time when all of our innovations are planned within hospitals and because we're having a winter in the middle of summer you know those renovations have to go ahead we've got to still get ourselves ready for the services that we need to provide in winter time but unfortunately those are now conflicting with the pressures that we actually have within our hospitals but uh, as you say I think trusts are doing their best to be pragmatic in relation to that but nonetheless the renovations uh, not just within the Royal, but in all our hospitals as well, are having to be continued. And we are trying our best to ensure that we have across the region support in each any 
trust that maybe has to sort of close some beds because they have to sort of do some renovations within a ward, which might only take a few weeks. But obviously that has implications because they don't have the, the headroom that they would have had in, in previous summers, as you can imagine. But I think the, the point's well made in relation to renovations, but they are a, a summertime thing and something that we do want to continue with. The issue of ambulances then being queued up has been a, a perennial issue for us now in the last number of months in the, the face of those uh, unscheduled care pressures. The ambulance service now is doing what they call smoothing. So they're basically keeping an eye now on just how many ambulances are at any particular hospital and they're now stopping sent anymore. So they reach a, a tipping point. Now, unfortunately, I think it was Monday there. We had quite a line of ambulances at, at the Ulster, but that was because the smoothing was, there was limited things they could do in relation to the smoothing. But in general, in recent weeks, we haven't seen too much of that. But I think, Carol, obviously it's still a, an issue for us and it does reflect just on how many patients am, the ambulance service is dealing with at any one time. But we're trying as much as possible to prevent that and to divert ambulances to other hospitals that have a bit more sort of capacity to offload ambulances than necessarily going to one that already has a considerable queue, but very challenging. The message to cancer patients is that we will get these services back up and running as soon as possible. I, our hope is, and, and it reflects sort of Ian's comments, that this is a, this is a short surge, uh, that it, it, within a few weeks we will see ourselves trying to get back to some sort of normal um, and we will be able to have all of those patients rescheduled and get ourselves back to doing all the things that we need to do. Um, it, it is very challenging. I can only apologize to those patients that we aren't able to provide their, their surgeries this week. They were ready for them. They were, they were doing all the isolation and so on. The patients have to do getting the testing and so on. Uh, so that is really regrettable. But I think the, the flip side of the coin is we've also got to provide those patients with a safe service. And in order to do those uh, those operations, we've got to have the, the staff capacity to do them. So uh, while it's a minority of the 120 or so uh, operations have been cancelled, nonetheless, every one of those operations is important to, to someone. And I think we've got to do our best to try and get those re rescheduled as soon as we possibly can. Take your point in relation to workforce planning as, as well. I mean, it is a very challenging period for us. I think we are, we're fully aware that, you know, our workforce is... Um, you know, what we rely heavily on to actually deliver the services that, that need to be delivered. Um, I think the call that went out at the weekend to ask staff to come in was a reflection that this wave came at us about two weeks before we expected, Carol, to be frank. So on that basis, I think we did have to take some measures over the weekend and thankfully some staff sort of followed that call. But I think since then, we are now much more prepared. We've reestablished our critical care hub, for example, uh, and that hub then will be managing beds across the region to ensure that we, again, have the, the, the kind of care that uh, patients who require ICUs uh, have access to the care that they require. But it, it, it has been very challenging and we have had to think on our feet uh, uh, recently. And, and I think your, your first point then in terms of the surge plans, we are enacting our surge plans. That's what's happening right now. Um, you know, and what we're trying to do is keep as much of our elective work going as we possibly can. The vast majority of our elective work will continue this week and we're hoping to get back to normal, if not next week, certainly the week after. So we will do all that we can to ensure that as few operations are cancelled as we can possibly uh, sort of uh, manage. You'll remember in previous waves, we largely cancelled almost every operation. Uh, the vast, vast majority of operations were cancelled. So this time it's the, ma the minority, but not losing sight of the fact that every operation is important to an individual and their family. And Chair, just on the, the and thank you for that. Um, it's just on the issue of the modelling. I do think 
um, we do need further clarification on that because modelling, the modelling, especially the last part that goes to the board and then to the trusts, um, is actually going to impact on workforce planning right across the board. Um, and I would say, uh, just on behalf of, you know, constituents as well as um, people who have been in contact with us all, I'm sure, that we, we just can't keep relying on the goodwill and the commitment of a beleaguered workforce. You're constantly stepping up. Um, and there does need to be, um, in my opinion, a completely different emphasis on trying, I mean, the, the whole area around recruitment, particularly for staff who have applied to be cleared. None of us are saying take shortcuts, but someone waiting nine weeks is a bit ridiculous. And then for me, the retention of staff is really important. A lot of them are going to the private sector because they feel burnt out. And we, and we need to stop that flow. And the last thing is we do need to see uh, workforce planning issues, particularly around GPs, because there was problems getting access to GPs anyway. And now with the reduced out-of-hour services right across trust, or is particularly in the Belfast Trust, and then Collins raised his own constituency, that's going to be a big issue because we don't get that sorted out. We're going to see bigger impacts in our emergency departments, and that's the last thing people need. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. And I'll go then. Um, I'll go then to Deputy Chair Pam Cameron. If I could ask members if you feel your question hasn't been understood and isn't being answered correctly, if you want to indicate through the chair, just just in terms of pressure of time. And I would ask everyone to keep your questions succinct and the responses succinct as well. And. Uh, if, if 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 at the end of, of, of a sort of period of time there are questions outstanding, maybe we could ask for those to be retorted in writing because I don't want to impact on all the members. So there is it does work out approximately eight minutes or so there for each member. So I'll go then to Pam. Go ahead, please. Thank you, Chair. Uh, and good morning, Professor Young, Patricia and Paul. And just to say thank you very much for your time this morning. Obviously, this is an unplanned meeting during recess and so we do appreciate your, your attendance here at, at the committee. Um, obviously the um, the increasing pressures facing our health service as a result of the latest this fourth wave of, of COVID-19 are grave concern and uh, not least because of the impact that this is having uh, as we can already see on elective care throughout trusts in particular uh, Belfast selling at 30% capacity is highly concerning. But I also want to put in record um, thanks to the dedicated health and social care staff who have been working around the clock donning PPE in the hottest days ever recorded in Northern Ireland and often working during their, their off periods as well, coming back in to ensure that patients receive the best possible care and attention. So we really need to put on record uh, thanks to the uh, staff who, who have done such an incredible work over, over over the last 18 months, but it certainly over the last number of weeks as well. Um, I wanted to uh, look at, first of all, uh, the the workforce appeal and, and where that's at. I mean, as of 2nd of June, only 13.9% of applicants to the workforce appeal have been appointed. And yet only 8% of the applicants have been rejected. So that's suggesting that the vast majority of applications are still active, but haven't been progressed um, to a point where the health service is seeing um, an, an advantage or the benefits of, of having that workforce appeal in place. So we'd like to know, you know why the, the appeal hasn't been maximised and why we haven't got more out of that the potential 
of all those people who have come forward and said, look, I'm willing to come back. I'm willing to do whatever it is they're willing to do. would like to hear more about that, why we haven't got more out of that workforce appeal, but when, quite frankly, people are obviously willing to come back. And we have heard recently uh, on media uh, around red tape issues and severe delays in, in getting staff back in. I also would like to know um, what efforts have been made in approaching and uh, working with the private sector, especially in terms of uh, the electric care downturn. What role can the, uh, the private sector play in that and have those approaches been made or have they been planned and or is that happening? So I would like to hear a bit more about that for now. Um, obviously, the, the vaccine uptake um, is incredibly important and very successful and I'm very much very very happy that um, uh, that the the mobile vaccine um, units are coming out and certainly coming down from next week that's very welcome and I'm trying to push as much as possible to get as big a turnout for for that certainly in my constituency for for starters but so it's very welcome that's happening I think it's a good road going down I think Patricia probably needs some more ice cream vans and maybe a, a a marquee with some burgers and a barbecue. So I, I would do anything to get these young people to come out and encourage them to come out and, and, and do uh, a good thing for everybody else. But I would like to know, actually, uh, in terms of the vaccine uptake, what the percentage uptake has been now from health and social care staff, uh, because I know that will not be 100%. And I think it's important that, um, that health and social care staff also set a good example to the rest of the population in terms of being willing to take that vaccine if they possibly can. So um, I, I will um, maybe ask Ian if he could um, maybe give us uh, an update on um, when the peak in cases is expected and, what the, and refresh us as to what the normal lag period is for resulting hospitalisations and admissions to ICU. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead, Ian, please. We'll start with Ian, maybe. Yeah, so I'm happy to address the last um, issue. Um, so at the moment, um, we reached a peak of 520 cases per 100,000 per seven days around four days ago. And we've declined slightly since then. As I indicated in my introduction, I think there are two explanations for that. One is the recent good weather, in which case cases may rise again. Um, secondly, it could be reaching a high level of population immunity in the most important subgroup of the population in terms of virus spread, that is the 18 to 30s. And the number of cases in the 1830s has declined over the last um, week. So we'll know better next week, but I think it's possible that the case numbers um, have peaked or are close to peak at the moment. There's that, that does not apply to every part of Northern Ireland. So Belfast clearly peaked last week and has fallen. Um, and Mid-Ulster, for example, is still rising rapidly with no sign of having peaked. So there is some heterogeneity in terms of um, different local government districts. In general, hospital admissions and occupancy will peak at eight to 10 days after the cases rise. Now for individual trusts, the most important factor will be the case numbers in their immediate catchment area. 
So for Belfast, we might reasonably expect to see some decline in hospital numbers next week, based on the fact that case numbers have been going down now for a few days. Critical care pressures clearly um, generally lag further two to three days behind. Thank you. And then in relation to the workforce appeal and the private, the private sector? So I'm not close enough to the workforce appeal, unfortunately, Colm, so I'll have to take it offline and come back to you with, with a written response. Uh, as for the private sector, you know, we've been working with the private sector throughout. Uh, we continue to, to hold a contract. We also independent clinic, for example, and our consultants are able to actually, from trusts, are able to go in there and perform operations. So we're using capacity within the private sector where we can, although the, the private sector have also brought a lot of their own services back online. So it's increasingly limited the, the extent to which we can access the private sector but more generally then in terms of having uh, sort of elective care we are working with particular private uh, providers to provide some of that care on top of that as you know we've introduced the, the republic of ireland uh, scheme uh, to support any patients who wish to uh, i suppose to opt to to go to services in double uh, in dublin pay for those themselves and then we reimburse them uh, to the to the level of the nhs tariff so we are trying as many and as creative ways to offer other ways for people to access private sector care uh, to have the, the i suppose the nhs care that they require uh, i think that's something that we want to continue to do more with. We're also working uh, to develop, uh, I, suppose, uh, I suppose, a new contract with private sector providers, and we're hopeful that that will also deliver some additional capacity in coming months as well. Okay, we did lose small, very small sections of that. I think we were able to follow the sense of it, but there may be just a wee connection issue with you there, right. Paul. Okay. We, we lost you. We, Pam, can I just check back with you there in relation to your content there for the workforce appeal figures to be uh, brought back to committee? Chair, it didn't cut out at our end, so it must be must be your broadband. Okay. Um, no, I'm certainly not not content with with not having any information around the workforce appeal for now. And I, and I would ask Paul if you could if you could get that to committee at, um, urgently because obviously okay. you know, we can write all day long to uh, to the departments, but we we know the pressures on the departments and, and we know um, responses can be incredibly slow, even okay. even. When, even when we are sitting, when we ask questions, that some of the uh, some of the questions are never answered, quite frankly, uh, and are and are very slow as well. But we do understand the pressure. But on, on this critical issue, I think that um, we we need to be prepared and, and we need to be maximising that workforce appeal. If there are people willing there to help, we need them on board. I don't think we have the luxury of of um, wading through red tape and and of of maybe being very particular around contractual issues or whatnot that I think we need to do more in terms of harnessing the help that, that is um, already there. Um, but yeah, and maybe Patricia could could answer the, the questions around the vaccine uptake as well. And I wanted actually to add to that, and maybe Patricia would know, or maybe um, yeah, Ian, uh, in around, um, you know, so the Belfast Trust indicated that 40% um, of COVID patients are vaccinated. Can you? Is there any further breakdown in that? Are these mainly those that have had one dose, for instance, or um, have they been infected maybe um, shortly after they've had their vaccines and it hasn't been effective enough? Do we have any more breakdown of that detail as to why there would be 40% um, still hospitalised with COVID um, who, who have actually had a vaccine? Okay, and brief brief answers on those, please. Uh 
Chair, I wouldn't be able to answer about the Belfast Trust information or indeed the impact of vaccination and and Ian may have a comment on that. But if I can go back to the earlier question, Pam, that you raised about a vaccination, and, and I do very much welcome your comments about the mobile units and the encouragement that anyone and, and particularly leaders such as yourselves give to it is, is incredibly important. And I, and I think the issue of incentives is a sensitive one. You do it with a light touch and you're quite right. It is of the scale that you mentioned. I think that has a, a good incentive. Other than that, I think sometimes it can have a, an adverse incentive. What we do know from the vaccine management system is that 150,000 health and social care staff, and that is right across the statutory community, voluntary sector, those who would have face-to-face -face contact um, with individuals. So that means that within trusts, that would be a very high, you know, it's well beyond 80%. And indeed, in some of the front line, it's beyond 90%. Um, we don't have exact figures, for example, for care homes, because we took vac vaccinating teams out to the care homes. So if someone was vaccinated there, it was recorded that they were vaccinated as part of that work stream. Um, but many of them who weren't on duty may have gone into a vaccination centre and just been recorded as a generic health and social care staff and not as care home. Um, so that means it slightly underrepresents what's in there. But we know that that is well beyond 70% and we know that it is, it, it is higher than that. Uh, and we have a system in place that for new staff, and I'm very minded of your comments about the recruitment, any new staff come in would have an opportunity to be vaccinated. So they haven't missed out just because they weren't employed at the time that the, that, that, that the programs uh, started. But um, trusts in particular keep a very close eye on this and they do watch. And this has been the most successful campaign that they've ever run uh, in terms of staff. And we're hoping that will have a really good um impact on the flu vaccine this winter that those who would have taken the COVID vaccine will uh, continue to take the, the flu vaccine, which hasn't been quite as successful as this. We hope it has a positive impact. Thank you. And maybe a brief comment then, Ian, in relation to the, the, uh, the rates of non-vaccinated? Yes. So at the moment, in general, um, around two-thirds of hospital admissions um, are of non-vaccinated um, patients. They tend to be, um, on average, of younger age. Um, however, um, the remaining third have been vaccinated and the majority of those are double vaccinated. Um, double vaccination is extremely effective with any of our vaccines against protection, providing protection against severe disease. It reduces your risk of getting COVID a second time by about 70%. So, People who are vaccinated can still get COVID, which is why we need to continue with some precautions. But they are 95% protected against the most severe disease and 95% protected against hospital admission um, or um, ICU admission or more severe outcomes. Given though that around 80% um, of our adult population um, is double vaccinated at the moment, then that means that a considerable proportion or a considerable number of individuals will still be at risk of hospital admission even after double vaccination. So it's very effective at an individual level, but when considered at a population level, we will continue to see hospital admissions of the double vaccinated including double vaccinated individuals with severe disease.
Yeah, thank, thank you, Anna. I'll need to move on there. We do need to be uh, to conclude this meeting at 11. So I'm moving on to Jonathan Buckley. Go ahead, Jonathan, please. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, panel. Uh, listening to Professor Young at the beginning of this meeting, uh, I was uh, taken aback by the, the figures that I perceived him to represent in terms of, I think it was, you said, one-third uh, and when, when comparing this wave with other waves, you talked about one third of hospital admissions compared to previous wa uh, waves and a percentage from five to six percent down to three to four percent of admissions to hospitals. And on listening to that, I suppose you can understand my disgust at reading and being informed about the Belfast Trust's decision to cancel some cancer surgeries. I mean, I'm taken aback and aghast by that because I can't comprehend how we have not learnt our lessons about how damaging this approach is to both patients and indeed the reputation of both trusts and the Department of Health during this pandemic. I have never supported this approach by trust. And as a member of this committee, I want it to be noted that I certainly do not trust it now. I think it's both cruel, wrong and unjust. Uh, so with that in mind, and perhaps Paul is maybe the best to answer this for me, how are trusts cooperating to maximise elective care capacity and ensure emergency care for all of those who need it? Yeah, sure, Jonathan. I mean, I think that since the, I suppose the, the opening up, if I can use that terminology around Easter time, um, the five trusts have met weekly to talk about the, the current priorities in terms of elective care. Uh, um, uh, surgeries uh, and the vast majority of those are cancer related uh, uh, surgeries as you can imagine uh, and we've been working through those very much in a prioritized list so in that way uh, you know it's those we look at the patients across the region who are of, of highest priority right now to be to have their surgery provided and we then look at where the opportunities are to provide those surgeries as much as possible we try to provide the surgeries closer to home but where we have to ask a patient to go a bit further uh, to another hospital, we will do that if it means that the patient will get that surgery as soon as possible. So there's been a, a, you know, a fairly sophisticated process of working through that. But because the backlog is considerable in terms of working down those priorities, we are still in that kind of sort of priority two, as we call it, Jonathan, uh, uh, which is really looking at those uh, sort of urgent uh, surgeries, cancer surgeries and so on. We need to move further down that list and look at some of those other surgeries that have been waiting a long time as well. And as you know, uh, the minister has, has published the elective care plan that we need to take forward as well in coming years but it will take us some years to, to catch up with that uh, i think as we as we've clearly outlined within that plan so a lot of cooperation a lot of collaboration patients being prioritized based on need uh, and then ensuring that there isn't any kind of a postcode lottery across the region in relation to those priority patients so that those patients are seen as soon as possible at whatever hospital but hopefully at, at, at a hospital near to them were those cancer patients that that had informed of their cancer surgeries being cancelled were they offered alternative locations uh, no I, I don't think that's been possible on this occasion but i think the intention is to reschedule and i'm sure that priority prioritization group will ensure that 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 does include looking at alternative locations well i i have to put on record paul i i think this approach is, is wholly wrong 
uh, and, and I think it sends completely the wrong message. If we if we are cancelling cancer operations in summer, whenever we have a third of hospital admissions compared to previous waves, I dread to think what potentially the winter could look look like. And I think it goes back to, and I think the chair mentioned it. It goes down to now: is there adequate planning in place uh, to ensure that we do not fall into a position where come winter, come autumn pressures, that we're dealing with with more of this? cancellations which i think is completely counterproductive and sends completely the wrong message and jonathan just to re-emphasize as well as this surge in covid it's maybe a lot sort of lower of a surge than previous surges but as well as this surge in covid we have been dealing with unprecedented uh, unscheduled care pressures in our system for the last three or four months we have been trying to do that uh, as much as possible without it having any effect on, on the elective surgery and, and it has not had any effect on the elective surgery. We have reached a tipping point, which also includes the fact that we have some, you know, in Belfast Trust, some 500 plus staff are currently either infected or off due to the contact with an infected person across the region. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a similar picture in all trusts. So we, it is in many ways a whole range of factors leading to this, not just the upswing in the number of COVID related admissions. Okay, and with that in mind, and perhaps you could answer this and probably follow it up by Professor Young, um, you've talked about the staffing pressures that have presented themselves across the system, uh, and and I fully recognise that, and I know the pressures that the staff have been under. They haven't got a break uh, from the beginning of all of this, but we're hearing constantly from the hospitality sector, for example, about how... uh, you know, they're, they're, there's a ping pandemic. Their their staff are being pinged by the app. They're forced into self-isolation, many of them vaccinated, and therefore causing many of the premises to close or, or operate on a reduced capacity. Are you facing the same ping pandemic within the NHS at the moment in Northern Ireland? And if that is the case, is there another way by which we can manage this process to ensure that we have maximum staff in uh, our hospitals to ensure that we're we're adequately dealing with the the inpatients uh, coming in both for uh, elective care and indeed in our ANEs and uh, our GPs, which has been mentioned. Is is there is there a different way we can do this to ensure if there is a problem? So uh, so you'll be aware that kind of contact tracing has had to be sort of upscaled in recent weeks because that's a reflection of the number of cases. Therefore, there's more contact tracing required. And obviously that affects staff. It both affects staff who are coming into contact with patients with COVID in hospitals, but also in their in their personal life, just in, in and being out and about and so on. So, of course, you know, our staff are no different in that way from other staff. But I think we also know that uh, we need to think differently about how we view sort of double vaccinated staff, uh, think about how we use PPE and so on to ensure that we can keep staff in work. But I think that's a, a conversation that's happening, uh, I suppose, at policy level as well, Jonathan. But it's certainly we're keen to ensure that, you know, those staff where we can keep them at work uh, despite contact, uh, that we do do that, but obviously do it safely, particularly for the patients that they will care for. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So I'll need to uh, move on then to Orlea Flynn. Go ahead, Orlea, please. Yeah, Gormelgut, um, Colin. Just to, to start off, I know Ian, you had mentioned earlier, um, and I completely accept and agree that um, all the officials are under huge pressure, as is the wider health system and all of our health and social care staff. And 
Um, just similar to Pam, I want to thank all of the panel members for coming forward to the committee here this morning. But I, I do just want to put it on record. I think it would have been good to have the minister, um, the CMO, or indeed the CNO in attendance as well. But thanks very much for, for coming along. Um, Ian, just to go back to in your opening remarks, you had mentioned when the modelling is um, designed, um, I know you had says that obviously it doesn't take into account some of the, the broader issues around, you know, um, you know, societal behaviour and, and the vaccination. But you did mention that you were assuming an 85% vaccine uptake by July. And I would just um, like to know, were you considering that whenever you were, you were carrying out the modelling? So were you considering that vaccine uptake of 85%? And more to the point, were you taking into account if the vaccination levels hadn't reached the 85 percent? Um, because I'm just thinking then, could the modelling have, I know it's not based on predictions and stuff, and you're trying to deal with the numbers you're working with, but was any of that taken into account that those vaccine levels wouldn't have reached 85 percent and then we would have been in the scenario that we're in at the moment? So at the beginning of um, the month, um, we modelled um, 85% by the end of the month, which we felt was achievable. And actually, we also modelled 90% at the end of the month, which is the position that has been reached in England, Scotland and Wales. Um, and if we could have achieved 90% by the end of the month, we would have reduced the size of this peak by one half, and we would have reduced our hospital pressures by one half it would have made an absolutely enormous difference. Mm -hmm. As it happens, we, during the middle of the month, decided that um, it looked as if, for multiple reasons, and this is not straightforward, you know, something about Northern Ireland, not lack of effort by Patricia um, or her colleagues, or by, in terms of messaging, but for some reason, our population is more reluctant to come forward for vaccination than population in other parts of the UK. So we adjusted the modelling and we are based it currently on 82%. Um, and we're following very closely what we expected, expect based on 82% vaccination at the end of the month. So we do take that into account. Mm -hmm. The other things that are important are the extent to which people adhere to behaviours. and. Um, all members will have their own view of the extent to which that's happening. Um, you know, we've made various assumptions about how we thought people would behave. And I think we've been reasonably close in terms of the case numbers. We've done a little worse than our central scenario in terms of hospital pressures. And the reasons for that aren't clear to us, but in all likelihood do reflect um, somewhat poor adherence to... Um, social distancing, to face coverings, to people maybe mixing in large numbers where they shouldn't be and just not being sufficiently careful because all of those things remain important. Okay, thank you. And I have one more question for Ian and then one quick question to Paul. So, Ian, just to go back, see whenever the Motlin, um was revised earlier um, in the month, was that in reaction to um, the, the trusts reaching that breaking point? And in your opinion, could that remodeling have been done any earlier and I know that you have mentioned that so at the minute there's a pessimistic central and optimistic phases and at the minute we're in the we're working on the central modeling and could you just just explain why that is if in terms of critical care we're in the pessimistic 
sort of remit and we're also in pessimistic slash central um, in relation to hospital pressure. So a wee bit of clarity as to why we're still working off the central model, if that's accurate. So we don't really recommend working off the central model. We present the three models um, and the central one is the one that's considered more likely. Um, but in terms of planning, I think it's important to also take account of the pessimistic model um, because the pessimistic model is is possible and has always been possible. So, um, you know, we provide the three models. It's not just that we give the central scenario and the three models people can look at and then decide what's the most appropriate basis for um, for planning. But the bottom line here is the course of the epidemic and the size of it. That's what's causing the problem. It's not anything else. And as Paul has indicated, the difficulties this time have been augmented, I think, by two things. Firstly, for the first time, we're introducing more relaxations at the time of a rapid increase in cases. We've never done that before. We've always introduced restrictions at the time of a rapid increase in cases. And the impact of that is somewhat on difficult, difficult to predict because it's a new trajectory. And then secondly, we have the issue of staff needing to take holidays and the fact that I don't like the term pandemic. I don't think it's appropriate. What we're seeing is a large increase in cases during a time when people have more contacts and those contacts are being appropriately contacted and advised to self-isolate to reduce the transmission of the virus. But all of that is coming together to make this a particularly difficult period. And just on that, on the, when the Motlin was revised, um, Ian, was that in, in reaction to the, the trusts, some of the trusts reaching that tipping point that Paul was speaking about? No, it wasn't. Um, the modelling came ahead of um, trusts facing a tipping point. The modelling was in response to our assessment of the uptake of vaccination and the fact that we weren't going to achieve 85%, we didn't think, by the end of the month. Okay, Ian, thanks very much. And just quickly then to Paul, um, so I think the Palm's point on the workforce appeal is really important, and I do think we need to see that breakdown, um, you know, considering how many staff are off um, on leave or are self-isolating. Um, so it would be important to see that, um, th those figures, if you have them, Paul. And just my question really is, do you do you, do you foresee any plans to scale down other services, obviously on the back of the news that we're hearing around the cancer surgery and, and the orthopaedic surgeries? So just, just to emphasise, so what we've been doing is we've been, we've been faced with 1,800 staff off due to, due to COVID-related either infection or, or contact. Uh, we've had to ensure that all of our what we call baseline critical care beds are available to us. So we've been we've now have those in place, but in putting those in place in the face of those uh, sort of staff unavailable to us, added to the, the annual leave issue. But we've planned for the annual leave in that way um, has meant that, that that has had some impact on elective care. But we now have all of those beds open, all of those critical beds open, I think bar two. So 86 beds available to us right now. There are 13 
uh, empty critical care beds available should patients require critical care. So on that basis, we I think we'll see now how the next few days progress. Earlier is, is our our sense. Um, I, you know, we've we've done what we can. We are actually have also plans in place that by Friday, should we require them, we'll put a further six critical care beds in place as well. But we'll, as I say, each day we are keeping a very close eye on, on where things are in relation to what's coming through the front door uh, in terms of COVID-related and indeed non-COVID-related critical care because all those other services continue and people uh, other than COVID patients will require critical care, as you can imagine. So keeping it under review. But at the moment, we have a good bit of headroom in uh, critical care. We have some headroom in respiratory care as well. Our hope is you know, listening to Ian's points that perhaps this won't get much worse. And if it doesn't get much worse, and indeed, if it starts to get better, we'll switch as much back on as we possibly can. But for now, we've we've cancelled operations this week. I think we'll reflect over the next day or so on whether we need to have further next week. But let's hope that that's not going to be required, because at least we now are in a better position in terms of managing what's currently coming through our door. That's great, Paul. Thanks very much. Thank you. And Paula Bradshaw, go ahead, Paula, please. Um, thank you, Chair, and thank you, panel, for this morning. A few um, quick questions. Um, first of all, the policy that came in in England around um, frontline staff, where there's a risk of um, harm to the service, are allowed to adopt a risk assessment and then take tests every day and come into work. Um, has that been considered here? And um, if so, is it, is it going to come forward? The second question is in relation to the vaccination of post-primary Pupils, I think another, I think Professor um, Gabriel Scalley's come out today. I am very concerned that we're heading into the third academic year where our um, children, um, the most relevantly, of most relevance, um, those entering exam years are going to be off self-isolating and have their education disrupted. We know that British territories overseas like Bermuda that follow JCPI have invited pupils to come forward. So why are we not doing that here? Um, the COVID app, um, relating to Ian's um, um, comment there about pandemic, we know how many people have downloaded the app, but are we aware of how many people have deleted it for fear that they may be pinged and be required to self-isolate? Um, and then lastly, and this is for Paul, um, with reference to the independent sector, and I'm not sure whether you have any sway over this, but I'm aware that the new state-of-the-art ICU unit in Kingsbridge Independent Hospital has been waiting since April for um, a visit and inspection for registration from RQIA. They have the capacity to support the Belfast Health and Social Care Trust with some of the um, deferred um, surgeries and appointments, but they can't do that without this registration from April. That's far too long. We need to be far more agile. And then the last one, in case anybody's any information in terms of the vaccine passport website, apparently it's down today. And is there any indication of when it will be back up and running? Thank you. Callum, I'll, I'll maybe take a couple of those and then defer to, to colleagues thereafter. Uh, daily testing for staff. I think we're looking at all uh, in that space, Paula. You know, and it's the point I'm making about currently staff you're off due to contact, and it might not even be family contact. I think we are looking at you know what are the things that we can do to, to actually get those staff back to work 
so that's a, a, a very significant focus for us. And I know where we'll be looking at the testing issues as well. Uh, and as for the Kingsbridge issue, I, I'm happy to raise that with RQIA. I'm sure RQIA are not dragging their heels in any way, Paul, I assure you. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressures in the system in general at the moment. Uh, and RQIA, like all of us, are, are, are pretty stretched. But yeah, I mean, if there's an opportunity there to, to access further care, we have a, a good relationship with Kingsbridge, work with them on a number of, of areas. So certainly happy to raise it. Well, I'm not sure how influential it will be, Paula, to be honest with you, but certainly happy to raise it. Uh, Chair, I'm very happy to take up some of, the, some of the other kind of issues. Can I, I just say I'm not directly involved in this, but I, I am aware that I think from last Friday, CMO, CNO and others, there was a a letter issued about a risk assessment of staff who'd had the um, uh, where a situation where a lot of staff had uh, been notified by by the app or had had contact. So I think that 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 the opportunity for that is already in place. But as I said, I'm not directly involved, but I have I have heard um, those interviews and discussions. If I go to the vaccination of post uh, primary children, JCVI, as you know, have really. Uh, taken a long time uh, to reflect on this and they've looked at the safety of the, the vaccine, they look at the risk and the benefit for children and they've only issued us with interim guidance at this stage. I did put up earlier the four categories of uh, of the under 18s at this point that they're recommending and we're, we're starting with that and we see the urgency as soon as it was um, uh, that advice was made available to us. Um, uh, this is not over. I mean, they're continuing to consider children. Indeed, they meet on a Thursday, and I know it's on their agenda for today. Um, I know that they, uh, the chief medical officers of all uh, four nations, and indeed I know that in the South of Ireland they have uh, recently issued, um, at, uh, the, the comparable organisation to JCBI has recently issued advice to vaccinate the 12 to 15 year olds. So um, we're still waiting for further advice on that, on that but I, I do understand fully the kind of arguments um, that uh, the disruption that there's been for those already. And uh, um, we will, uh, we're, we're ready, we anticipate um, whatever might come for us and, and we'll be ready to vaccinate if that revised advice uh, comes forward. Um, in relation to the vaccine um, passport, um, I, I, don't, I don't think any of us here present are involved in, in that part of it. So I'm afraid you probably as know as much as, as we do at this point, but we know it's it's vexatious to people when such things are interrupted. But uh, we're focusing on getting as many people eligible to get a vaccine passport as possible. Um, thank you. Sorry. I think it was just one question missing, and that was how many people have actually um, deleted the COVID app from their phones so they don't get pinged. Do we know the figures? So that's not information which we would have. Um, it may be available from the um, department via the Chief Digital Information Officer, and um, I would have thought a, a, a question could go and the information could be um, provided. Um, I know colleagues are working very actively in relation to COVID certification and the issues that have arisen with the app, which the department has issued a, a statement on. And my understanding was hope to have that working again as soon as possible and have put interim arrangements in place to try to ensure that individuals who need 
um, certificates for imminent travel will be able to get them, although I fully understand the challenges and problems that people have been experiencing around that. Sorry, I'm technology problems this morning, your panel, apologies, but thank you for your answers. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Paula. And Alan Chambers, Alan, go ahead, please. Chairman? Yes, I hear you there, Alan. Thank you. Uh, the uh, Chairman uh, earlier, and I, I, par I par paraphrased uh, uh, your words, you comment the officials that you continue to do the same thing. Uh, why do they expect to get a, a different outcome? And I, I just comment that after decades of underfunding of the NHS, why would we as politicians expect different outcomes uh, in this crisis? We expect the health service to deliver despite the historic decisions that have in effect tied one hand of our NHS behind our back. And you know, we as politicians can sit here today and we can express outrage at the present situation, but I think uh, we have to accept a, a degree of responsibility. Um, in relation to uh, vaccinating, uh, I'll ask Patricia. Uh, Patricia, the under 18s uh, are not uh, uh, listed as, as being available to get the vaccine. I don't know whether that's uh, because of safety concerns or whatever, but that particular cohort, they're well capable of, of contributing uh, quite substantially, I would thought, uh, to the transmission uh, of the virus. Um, if there are safety issues, uh, and that's the reason why we're not giving it to the under-18s, how can we justify then giving it to those under-18 who are vulnerable? Um, another question in relation to the booster jobs, I'm just wondering, is that just been explored or is that a given that that will happen? Will, uh, the, will we receive the same vaccine as we did in, in our first two doses? Who will deliver those uh, boosters? You know, given the pressures that GPs are under at the moment, um, will we? I mean, will we just be adding to that pressure if, if they are going to be asked to deliver the, the booster job? Uh, and will it be done maybe in conjunction with the uh, the seasonal flu job? And just a, a final question, maybe to Paul. Uh, Paul, is the NHS facing the most challenging winter? living memory. Chairman, if I come in, if you yeah. don't mind. Um, yeah, Alan, um, if, I, if I deal, uh, first of all, uh, JCVI take a lot of evidence um, around those children who have already been vaccinated. So uh, yeah. when they make a recommendation, um, they, they have to, there has to be more benefit than risk to them. So at this moment in time, those groups that they've recommended, there's more benefit than risk to them getting uh, the vaccine. But they're still considering it. You know, um, uh, less than a year ago, these were these vaccines were uh, unknown, and uh, so there's a lot of experience now. So I do think they they will keep reviewing this and considering it. Um, the the I, I think for those between um, 18 and 29 who haven't come forward, some of the issues have been that they might have had personal safety concerns. But for most of them, I think it's really that they don't think they're going to be affected by by the virus. Therefore, they don't personally see a benefit. And I, and I think that's the, those are the messages that we're we're trying to communicate because it, it may not just be about them; it'll be about their friends, family, and the community. 
Um, uh, the booster campaign, very happy to, to just say very briefly, we have received interim advice. We have done some detailed planning. It will start in September. There definitely will be a booster. It will not be for everyone who will be, it won't be necessary for everyone who's been vaccinated first time. Um, and we will have a partnership approach again, trust community pharmacy, and general practice. We supported general practice this time with additional vaccinators. We'll continue to do that in the booster program. Uh, the advice we've received to date is that it should be co-administered with the flu vaccine if possible. And given that that's the case, it can make this uh, really quite efficient. So we're trying to be very proportionate to try to take opportunities. We've got a lot of experience at doing this uh, in a very efficient way now. So we're gonna bring that experience uh, to the booster program. And in terms, Alan, then of your, your question in relation to winter, as I said in the introduction, uh, you, we are already above what we would see as a normal winter. Here we are in the middle of summer. So, I, I mean, we do dread to think what the winter will look like, Alan. Um, I mean, my hope is, my optimism is because, you know, we've got to keep staff morale up in relation to this, that we, the things that we're doing today in terms of sort of, you know, new discharge pathways, in terms of having the, the beds that we need within our hospitals and so on, will take some of that pressure off. But I, I, you know, I think our hope is that we will we'll begin to see a turn in our unscheduled care pressures. But I think we also recognise that some of our unscheduled care pressures relate to the, the care delayed. Uh, people who are who have had to wait longer for the likes of operations and outpatient appointments and so on, who are beginning to have worsening of their their, their conditions. So all I can say, Alan, is I hope not that we're not about to go into an, a, an even worse period in the winter. But and I think all we can do is plan as much as we possibly can and hope that our staff have the resilience to to deliver the services that we'll need in, in the coming months. Okay. Well, listen. Thank you for all you're doing, and uh, I think that. Uh, we have to all realise that we are all still in this together. Thank you. Mm. Yep, thank you, Alan. And um, Chiara Hunter, Chiara Gore-Lidahal. Thank you, Chair. Um, good morning, panel. Thank you all for being here uh, this morning. And just to, to note uh, my thanks to, towards yourselves for your hard work throughout this extremely difficult time. Um, I have a question this morning, uh, specifically around visitation. Um, we've seen throughout the pandemic how visitation uh, to hospitals with patients has been impacted, specifically with um, maternity expectant mothers, and then also uh, with patients experiencing um, or receiving palliative care. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, as we talk about the rise of cases, hospitalizations. Um, can I ask for clarification and assurance? I suppose that as the pandemic, if it happens to get worse, that expectant mothers will not be expected um, to give birth without their partners there. I expect that's a good question for me, Colm. And unfortunately, Cara, I'm not the right person to ask that question of. So uh, all I can do is apologise in relation to that. I mean, the difficulty we have, obviously, with the number of cases is obviously the infection rate then of patients who are in hospital. We are particularly concerned that people contract COVID in our, our, our hospitals, uh, never mind those patients who are having to come to hospital with COVID. So I think we're doing all that we can to limit the, the risk of, of people uh, contracting COVID in the hospital. And that's part of the reason why the visitation is happening in the way that it's happening. I know that colleagues in maternity services are doing all that they can to to, to offer women, uh, sort of pregnant mothers, the, the support that they need. Uh, but I'll need to come back to you, unfortunately, on the detail of that, Cara. I just I'm not cited enough on it. So apologies for that. No I can just probably add something, um, which is to say that um, at the moment it's likely that at least one person 100 in 100 in the population has COVID. 
and therefore um, anybody entering the hospital, um, one in a hundred visitors are likely to have COVID, um, given that many patients are relatively asymptomatic. On the plus side, the number of patients who are becoming infected with the virus in hospitals is much reduced compared with previous waves of the epidemic, um, which reflects both um, improved understanding of the virus and measures in hospitals and also the vaccination program, um, both for staff and for patients and, and visitors. So um, certainly there's not quite the same strong case um, as existed earlier in the epidemic for the need to impose restrictions in general terms. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. Um, just moving on then to my next question. Um, it also surrounds the delay and the cancellation of cancer surgeries. Um, I know it's been touched on about uh, what lessons have we learned previously um, to ensure that this doesn't happen again. But I'm just wondering what other kind of um, you know avenues are being explored. You know, perhaps facilitating surgeries in other trusts that are under less pressure. Is that being explored? Also looking at north, south, east, west, what other opportunities are being explored there? Because I do share uh, very strongly Jonathan's sentiment about um, these are life-saving surgeries and we have to kind of explore uh, every mechanism that we can to ensure that, um, you know, people living with cancer get their surgeries and have their lives saved. I think, Cara, that we are. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, we have a, a we're looking as in, is the five trusts work together to see where the patients with greatest priority, largely cancer patients, where we basically can deliver their surgery as soon as possible. So it's not necessarily at your at your nearest hospital. Although, we, as I said before, we try as much as possible to not have people traveling too far unnecessarily. So we're doing that. We've we have green pathways in all of our hospitals. Belfast City Hospital is uh, has has a number of green pathways. So ways of just ensuring that whatever happens with the pandemic, as much as possible, we protect a part of our each of our hospitals so they can continue to deliver uh, the surgery that they need to, to deliver. And you can imagine that it also requires patients to have isolation and so on and testing uh, for in advance of their operations, but it, which I appreciate is an inconvenience, but that's about protecting those green pathways for other patients as well. And largely our patients, I think, are, are very supportive of that uh, because I think they recognise it's not just for themselves, but it's also for the others that we're that, that we're thinking about as well. It is very challenging to maintain those green pathways in the current surge that we're in with the unscheduled care pressures that we have as well, Cara. But I think we're doing all that we can to do that, and we are exploring other avenues. As I said before, we're looking at the Republic of Ireland. We're working with uh, sort of local independent hospitals. We're looking at all our independent providers to deliver some of that surgery, and we'll continue to do that. And and we're hoping to draw additional independent uh, sir. Uh, providers from outside Northern Ireland uh, to provide contracts for us. Uh, largely, they will come to Northern Ireland to deliver those surgeries, uh, But and that's something we hope for in the next few months. Contracting, unfortunately, can be a, a slow process, but we found ways of being fleet of foot in, in the past year as well. But it's a very challenging position, and on top of that, we need more resources, as, uh, as members will be well aware. But I think we want to also ensure that we have maximised the resources that we currently have. So our focus is on the money that we have today and the resources that we have today. But we recognise that in order to do the things that we need to do more generally, we need to take forward our elective care plan as well. 
Thank you, Paul. And then just lastly, Patricia, just a question for yourself. Um, Alan had touched on there uh, about booster jabs and what potentially that rollout um, may look like. Um, can I just ask, when it comes to booster jabs, um, what kind of demographics do we anticipate will be held as priority? And also um, just on the walk-in clinics, which I think have been a great initiative, um, will that be carried out for booster jabs also? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Cara. We haven't completely... Um, uh, planned out every part of that but the interim advice that we received very recently is that it's somewhat similar to the winter flu vaccination programs that uh, other than it's for anyone aged 50 and above anyone who's clinically extremely vulnerable who is vaccinated first time around anyone who's clinically uh, vulnerable and frontline staff not the whole of the staff group this time but only frontline staff so um that means and uh, within that of course the number one priority group is care homes care home staff so we do that in that order um we are waiting to have confirmation about what vaccine will be used i think alan asked a question earlier and i've just realized i didn't completely answer it which was that um we have yet to receive advice about the vaccine. We expect that it will be something like Pfizer, um, and uh, therefore we have to manage the vaccine will will challenge us, um, as you know. Um, I think it's not likely to be mobile teams in the winter time. That is a more challenging affair. Um, but we'll work out how we can do that. It's a single dose, and it will only be for those who already had been doubly vaccinated and we're waiting for advice on what the dose interval needs to be. If there is one, it might be six months from the second vaccination, but we're waiting for that advice. Uh, so we've we've done, as we did the first time around, a lot of planning on if it's this, we'll model it that way. If it's this, we'll do, you know, so um, I expect we'll have a plan within the next two weeks and we hope we'll have the revised and final advice by that time so it allows to start putting in place because we're going to start to vaccinate the boosters in September. Okay, that's great, Patricia. Thank you all. Thank you, panel. Okay, thank you very much, Cara, and uh, thank you, thank you, members for attending, and and also want to thank the panel for making themselves available today. Um, we certainly would have liked to. Have, um, some of the some of the issues just weren't able to be addressed, um, but but we appreciate the fact that you you are here and, and have done your best. I think I do want to touch on that in terms of that workforce appeal that Pam and Arlea mentioned, um, in relation to particularly now heading into the winter and what we know could be a very difficult winter, that we use the time to mobilise every single asset. And, and Paul mentioned resources there. We need more resources. I'm conscious, as is Pam, that there's over 3,000 people responded to the workforce appeal, over 1,000 or around 1,000 to the vaccination. Only small numbers of those have really been put on the ground. And I think we need to absolutely maximise that to take pressure off other staff, to take pressure off GPs, etc. Um, also, the issue of nurses, we know it's been reported in the past week, 72 nurses out there willing and able and keen to get involved in this in this endeavour, but are awaiting checks. And like everyone else, I'm not asking for checks to be short-circuited or any risks to be taken with patient safety, but I'm asking for those to be prioritised, given they are such key workers and given they're so badly needed, and given that we're asking over and hard-pressed staff to uh, sacrifice their leave and come in and help out. So I think we need to be creative and manage it, imaginative and energetic around that issue. And I would appeal for that to be the case. I would also like to, and it hasn't been touched on today, but I'm aware that the healthcare staff payments are coming out at the present time. Some staff have received them and some haven't. There are issues I know with the uh, private, independent and primary care staff, but I would ask the department takes very, uh, very, 
quick consideration of how they can address questions and answers that are arising now within the staff group because it's it's causing confusion, it's causing frustration. It may it may it may create a situation where some staff feel that they have been a not treated with the same respect as other staff. So I would ask, given we're in the summer period and given there's so much confusion, that there is a resource made available from the department to deal with queries in relation to the rollout of the payments, please. And the final thing then I just want to ask on, there has been a, a significant breach in terms of the COVID uh, data, in terms of the COVID cert app. Can I ask what the extent of that breach has been? Have the people impacted been contacted and made aware? And are there are there uh, procedures in place to communicate information north south uh, in relation to the COVID certification process? So perhaps I can comment yeah. on ahead, on that. Um, so I know that colleagues um, in the digital service um, have been actively and fully investigating the breach and the reasons. For that I know they've been in contact with the information commissioner's office and that all appropriate measures will be taken um, in relation to fixing the breach and to notifying where appropriate those who might have been impacted um, by it. I'm not in a position to provide you know any further full details of that because it's not something I, I deal with but clearly it's something which is being treated um, very seriously and handled as rapidly um, as possible to correct it. Okay, okay. Thank you, and 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 just to reiterate, thank you all for attending today, and to wish you all the very very best in the time ahead. You and all of your staff groups, we fully appreciate everything that that you and the entire team, the entire staff cohort are doing and are being asked to do. And and by all means, um, I reiterate every word of support that has been said here at this committee today. Thank so, uh, thank you for that, and please, uh, please, uh, good luck in the time ahead. So thank you. Okay, members. Um, so there has been a number of uh, of additional pieces of information there that have been that have been uh, indicated that will be forwarded to us. Are there any other comments or members uh, members any other comments or actions briefly? Or uh, we await we await those those uh, those for the piece of information coming back. So I would also like to thank members for attending and for making yourselves available. Sorry, in what Go ahead, Pam. Sorry, Paula. Um, sorry, Chair, I couldn't, something's wrong with my technology today. Um, I was just going to say I thought this morning was extremely helpful and I'm a little bit concerned that it might be six weeks again until we as a health committee meet. There were so many issues there this morning. I think probably all could have taken two hours ourselves with the, the amount of queries we're getting from constituents, etc. So I'm just wondering, is there any consideration for maybe in three weeks' time for us to have another um Recall of the health committee. I think it would be very useful to be considered. Thank you. Okay, and our next our next planned meeting is on the Thursday, second of September, which is two weeks earlier than than the restart. So uh, I'll 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 take a view then from our members in relation to the session we just had, or um or if, uh, anything else. Paul, just just let you know we can we can let you go then. Okay. We're, we're 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 discussing with members, so just let you back to your very busy role. So thank you. Um. Any other thoughts, members, in relation to today's session or Paula's suggestion? Chair? Yes, Pam? Yeah, just say I don't disagree with Paula there. And I think especially on the back of the workforce appeal issue, I think we, we need to be um, really...
concentrating more and not asking more questions on it because I just think it's completely bizarre that it's so such a tremendous um, response to that appeal that we don't appear to have um, harnessed all that that help that's available and given where we are and how difficult it's been for health and social care um, in the summer months, what we're heading into in the winter, um, for sure could be will it will it will be worse given the delays and, and the backlog in, in uh, on the waiting list. So I think we we should be, um, you know, continuing to um, ask questions and scrutinise what's what happened with that over time. So it may well be useful if there was even a even a brief meeting just to update um, in between times. I'm happy to do that if that's helpful anyway. Okay, would members be content then to leave that that myself and the clerk will look at how that might be arranged or, or how we can facilitate that in a way that, that uh, um, maximises benefit and, and also places the least uh, the least uh, pressure on staff, uh, assembly staff who are who are currently trying to get their leave taken during the during the period. So I'll, I'll, I'll work with the, with the clerk on that. So, okay, members, then the only other thing then is a uh, date time place then of next meeting um, will, will be confirmed back by email after we have seen what, what is the potential and how we could set that up. So thank you, members, for your attendance today, and I wish you all the very best. And I would also say to each and every one of you that I think it's going to be important to try to get a break at some point over the summer because we are clearly going to be facing a very, very busy winter autumn and winter and we're going to be hitting the ground running extremely hard in september so we we will be meeting again before that so uh, i'll come back to you in relation to that when we see how that can be coordinated thank you members and take care bye everybody